Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5. We are finishing up chapter 5 in our trek through the Sermon on the Mount. One of the most famous passages, few chapters in the Bible, Matthew's five, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're going to end chapter 5 today, and then next week we're going to do a, just a standalone message about the incarnation of our Lord, and we won't pick back up into Matthew chapter 6 until uh, January of, of next year. So as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 43 through 48, uh, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're, willing, you're just more than willing. We'd love for you to take that Bible, you're more than able to take that Bible as, as our gift to you. Um, and you can find the page numbers there on the screen if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible. Well, as we said last week, this last part of Matthew chapter 5 is, as a one theologian has said, one of the hardest portions of Scripture, not necessarily to understand, but to live. Where Jesus, last week, we looked at how he calls us to not resist the evil person. And in the text that we're going to look at today, which really flows from what we looked at last week, he takes it a step further, but he says, now we are to love our enemies. This is a high and difficult call. It brings up so many questions, even questions that are, that are crowding in on us even today with just current events, being a person that lives in our culture today as we look at wicked and evil people that are doing horrible things. There's this sort of global dimension to this question, and then there's this personal dimension to it. How are we to engage our enemies abroad, terrorists, ISIS, ISIS Al-Qaeda, these Men that are doing horrific things. And then how are we to engage people even close to us that we would consider to be personal enemies? Well, let's read this text and and pray and ask the Lord to help us work through this text and understand what what the Lord is saying to us through it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor... And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think about this text. Father, as we consider your text, we do. We thank you for how good you have been to us in Christ, that you would give us your word that is your inspired, breathed out by you, completely true and authoritative text for us. 
These are difficult words, and there is no way that we can grit our teeth and resolve to obey them. We need you, by your grace, to give us hearts to obey and cherish and love you more than we love ourselves. I pray for Christians in this room that our hearts would be stirred with affection, even for people that we consider to be enemies. I pray for unbelievers in this room that you would warm their heart, that you would cause them to see and understand clearly the good news of the gospel and that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. I pray that you would do all of these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We pray it in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been watching the news, you know that 2015, back to 2014, was a difficult year for our nation in regards to racial tension. You remember the situation outside of St. Louis, Missouri, Ferguson, Missouri, where there was this young man that was killed by police, and I'm, I don't want to get into all of the situations there surrounding whether or not those things were justified or not, but the point was is that there was tension between the African-American community in Ferguson, Missouri, and St. Louis, Missouri, and the police in that area. It was shortly followed up by a similar situation in Baltimore where a young African-American male was being transported, arrested in a police vehicle, and somehow or another passed away in that police transport vehicle, caused riots in Baltimore. And then, almost as if it was like a powder keg, like a stick of dynamite onto a huge puddle of gasoline, in the summer of this year, we were all riveted as we watched this horrific event in Charleston, South Carolina, where a young, evil, murderous man, young man, walked into a prayer meeting of a predominantly African-American church, sat in that prayer meeting for a good while, and then killed, I believe, nine people along with a pastor at the end of this prayer meeting. It seemed like it was, again, just a fuse being lit and the racial strife that seems to be at an all-time high since the civil rights movement. And then a couple days later, the nation was struck at the words of the families of the victims as they spoke to the perpetrator in court. Listen to what these families said to this young man, Dylan Roof, who just a couple days earlier had taken the lives of their loved ones. This is Bethany Middleton Brown, representing the family of DePayne Middleton Doctor. DePayne was my sister, and I just want to thank the court on behalf of my family for not allowing hate to win. For me, I'm a work in progress and I acknowledge that I'm very angry. But one thing DePayne always joined my family with is that she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate. We have to forgive. I pray God's mercy on your soul. And I also thank God that I won't be around when your judgment day comes with him. Elena Simmons, whose granddaughter, Danielle Simmons, was murdered. Although my grandfather 
and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and that their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. And I just want to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. Anthony Thomas Thompson, representing the family of Myra Thompson. I forgive you, and my family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent and confess. Give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. Amen. Amen. Where does that otherworldly type of perspective and grace come from? I think it comes from the truths that Jesus speaks about in this text. I think the best way for us to unpack this text is to just work back through it verse by verse, and we're going to center on one truth, and then we're going to spend some time at the end making application. So let's look at the text again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, remember that Jesus is correcting the misinterpretation of the Pharisees and scribes of the Old Testament. And note that he says, it's not, he doesn't say, you have read where it was written, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because that was not written. He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because that phrase, hate your enemy, is nowhere in the Old Testament. The Pharisees and the scribes were piecing together what they thought the Old Testament was teaching. I think especially they were probably looking at some of these psalms where the psalmist will pray for God to take, the the psalmist will pray to God to take vengeance on the enemies of Israel. And they were wrongly interpreting those good and righteous pleas for God to judge evil men as God to sort of give us an endorsement to have enemies that we can hate. More on that later. But Jesus here is correcting their wrong interpretation. They were interpreting the Bible wrongly. And then they were teaching the people wrongly. Now these people were way more vulnerable probably than we are today. Think about this now. The Bible was not mass-produced. The, the Old Testament books that, that they were going off as their Bible at this time, the Holy Scriptures of Israel, were not mass-produced by printing presses like they are today. And so the, the way that information was passed down is certainly there were a few scrolls, but most of it was oral tradition. So people memorized, and these teachers of the law would memorize this text, and they would share it with the text. But the average people didn't have this benefit. And so they were particularly dependent and particularly vulnerable to either the good teaching or the wrong teaching of their leaders and teachers. We, however, live in a different time where we can 
print off just copies and copies and copies of God's holy inspired word. But we still, let's just take note of this, we still are very, very vulnerable. Even though we have copies of the Bible laying all around, uh, we often do not read it. And I think one of the great vulnerabilities of the church in the whole world, particularly in America, is just the spiritual vulnerability of biblical illiteracy. We often don't read the Bible for ourselves. And so here's the deal. All right, January 2016 is coming, and that's the time for us to sort of, yeah, shake off those, you know, dusty cobwebs and say, okay, I'm going to commit to reading the Bible. Let's not wait until December 30th or 31st while we're watching a football game to kind of come up with a plan. Like, start now. Start thinking about it even now. Thinking about how God might be calling you to engage His Word in a more intentional and systematic way. And listen, I know that it can be difficult. I know that there are portions of the Bible that are difficult to read. But here's the deal. Just right now, reason to come up with a plan to read God's Word and intake God's Word in this upcoming year. It just seems like the beginning of the year is a wonderful time to start new endeavors like this. Although, we don't need to wait until like January 1, to actually start reading the Bible, right? Let's, let's even start now. We have a, a great problem with biblical illiteracy, and I think it just bears itself out even in just the American church, where the self-help gospel or the prosperity gospel seems to be uh, so easily taken in and believed by people. And I think we're vulnerable to things like if, if Lifeway prints it, it must be true, right? And that's not, that's not a knock on Lifeway, by the way. I think that's like they're a wonderful gift of God. It's a great publishing Bible bookstore. But friends, God has given, we we live in an amazing age where God has given us an amazing amount of resources, but yet we're still vulnerable, aren't we? I think we're vulnerable to aesthetics. Like if it just, if it looks, if it's on a cool webpage with really hip pictures and like awesome people like sipping coffee that just look beautiful, they must be right. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Let's not be people that are vulnerable to things that aren't even in the Bible. Okay, that's just a little aside, not the main point of the text. I'm just on my little hobby horse. I'm getting off now. Okay, let's go back to the text. Jesus says this then. He continues. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brothers, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So what he's saying here in verse 44 is he's saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be like your father in heaven. So here, I think in this little portion of the text is the point of the whole paragraph. He's saying that you, Christian, are to image your father. God made you his child by his sovereign and free grace. He made you his to be like him, to image him. Now, as a result of you being made a child of God, now image God and be used as means 
of God's grace to others. So as the grace that you have received, now give it away to others. And here in this text, I think we see, and we want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this, we see two aspects of God's grace. So there in verse 45, he says that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the navy. I mean, I'm sorry, (laughs) the unjust. This is the doctrine of common grace, right? What Jesus is, is establishing here for This is something that we see all throughout the Bible that God, in fact, Robert read it to us at the beginning of the service in Psalm 149, verse 145, verse 9. He says that he is good to all, right? Think about this for a second. God causes everything to sort of be arranged in an order in his creation so that he is gracious to all people, even the most wicked of people. God is gracious, He's good. He causes crops to grow. He blesses even wicked people with a bounty of his goodness. He he causes the, the sun to rise and the rain to fall. He causes his abundance to be spread even on the most wicked of his enemies. This is the doctrine of common grace. It's a type of grace that God gives to all people without distinction. It's not a grace that saves, but it is a grace that is common to all people. Everybody is a recipient of common grace. In fact, there's this beautiful scripture in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that speaks about Jesus in his role of creating everything that is, and even in his ongoing active role of creation. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus upholds everything by the power of his word. That means that, that even the most wicked terrorist right now is being held together. The very cells of his body are being held together by the gracious, sustaining work of God the Son. And that is God's good and common grace to all mankind. We are all recipients of this. But then the Bible says... That there is another type of grace that isn't just common to all people, but when God in his sovereign goodness decides to make his common grace specific and hit the heart of an unbelieving person, he makes that common grace effective and he hits a person's heart with that grace and he makes that grace which can be shunned and not even acknowledged. Because here's the thing about common grace, right? Even the unbelieving atheist who is a he he may not acknowledge God's common grace but he's still a recipient of it right well here's a difference when God decides to move upon a person's heart and save save them he takes that common grace and he makes it effective and he graciously graciously overwhelms that person's ignorance and hard-heartedness so that they turn and recognize and trust in him and this is This beautiful doctrine of effective grace. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6. John 6, let me start in verse 35. These are sobering, important, humbling, and glorious words. Listen to what Jesus says about when God decides to make just common grace effective and personal for an unbeliever. And if you have an unbeliever in your family who you've been praying for forever, 
Oh, this verse should give you great hope that God's mercy does not depend on the strength of your unbelieving family member, but it depends on the riches of his mercy, which is way deeper than our love for our unbelieving friend, right? Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Day. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that God has given the Son, the Father has given the Son a great multitude of people. He has shown common grace to all. But God in His infinite, eternal kindness has given the Son a great multitude of people. And the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will make the grace, the common grace of God, effective for a great multitude of people. And He will draw them to faith, and he will lose none of them, none of them. There's, there, there's great hope in that. There's no terrorist too wicked. There's no son or daughter too steeped in sin. The Bible tells us there that Jesus never fails on anybody that the Father has given to him. He will succeed, right? He will take common grace, and he will make it effective for a great host of sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is glorious news. Listen, it's so glorious that it deserves a quote from Uncle Chuck. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon, my favorite dead British person. Listen to what, oh, by the way, um, there's this website where you can get all this uh, Charles Spurgeon gear. And I might have went a little crazy this week, <laughs> just so you know. But I, I got a hoodie with a Charles Spurgeon mug. I got coffee cups. I got pictures. So our house is going to be adorned with Charles Spurgeon paraphernalia. Such a wonderful decor for my wife. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says in this little morning-by-morning morning devotional. Let, 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 this take, let this give you great hope in the grace of God, right? Because some of you may be thinking, wait a minute now. Brad, you're putting a lot of emphasis on God. Well, yes. But I want you to see that that's actually really good news. If all of the emphasis was on us, if all of the initiative was on us to take the common grace of God and make it effective for our lives, friends, we'd never do it. Don't have that much confidence in yourself. And don't put that much esteem in the heart of a man or a woman. No, it's all God. And God is more to be trusted than we are. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, if you will select for me the grossest specimen of humanity, if he be but born of woman, I will still have hope for him because Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners. Electing love has selected some of the worst 
to be made the best. Pebbles from the brook are turned by grace into jewels for the royal crown. Worthless dross he transforms into pure gold. Redeeming love has set apart many of the worst of mankind to be the reward of the Savior's passion. Effectual grace calls deep-dyed sinners to sit at the table of mercy. And therefore, none of us should despair. Amen? Oh, that is glorious news, right? That's glorious news. But let's not believe it because a dead English pastor said it 150 years ago. Let's believe it because the living Word of God proclaims it. So let's go again to the text that Will read for us midway through the service in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And let's stare at it and see it. And I'm going somewhere with this. We're going to get back to our text. I'm building a case that I'm going to hopefully drop on you and that you'll see here in just a second about God's grace and the way that he brings grace to sinners who are his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We'll read it for us. Let's read it again. It won't kill us to read the same scripture twice in one service, right? Because some of you are about to watch a movie on December 18th called Star Wars. And some of you have maybe seen that movie at least one through six more than once, right? Okay, so it won't kill you to read the scripture twice in one year. Amen. I had... Rocky 1, 2, and 3, I think, memorized when I was a little kid. So it wouldn't kill me to, um, to, to read the same text twice. Romans 5, verse 6. Listen to this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And he's going to define who the ungodly here, are here in just a little bit more specific way in just a moment. But he didn't die for the pretty good. Or those that seem to have a lot of potential or middle-class Americans, or sharp lieutenants, or whatever, who can't find their way around in the woods at night with a compass. I'm looking at you guys. I know. I remember. I've been there. He's not in the business of saving people who seem to be good candidates for his team. He saves the ungodly, which is all of us before we are made alive by Christ. Don't make me do the Mexican food thing again, boys and girls. But there are only two types of people in this world, the just and the unjust, right? We're all ungodly. So at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, so you know, first we were called ungodly, now we're called sinners. And he's going to ratchet it even down a little bit more here in verse 10. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now listen to verse 10. First we were called ungodly, then we were called sinners. Now it's going to get even a little bit more personal. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. 
Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay? So let's go back. Let's, let's you think, man, Brad, you took a little turn. Our, I thought our text was Matthew chapter 5. It is. We're getting back to it. Notice that Jesus says, don't hate your enemies, but love them and pray for them. And then in this text, he says that before we became God's children, we were enemies of God. And so then he says, do all of this, treat your enemies in this way, so that, so that, that's a conjunction. It connects two ideas, right? You know where I'm going, conjunction, kids in the 70s, those of you that stayed at home on Saturday when there was only cartoons on Saturday, and I'm still bitter about that because my kids get cartoons every day of the week. And you watch Schoolhouse Rock, conjunction, junction, what's your function? <laughs> Love your enemies and pray for them so that you may be sons and daughters of God, so that you may image God. So here's what Paul is saying, and here's what Jesus is saying, piecing it all together. You, dear friend, if you are a son or daughter of God, we're an ungodly sinner who the Bible calls an enemy of God. And God made you his child, his friend, through sovereign, glorious, free grace. And the way he makes other people his children is by making his former enemies, now friends' children, showcases of his grace where they free themselves from their own rights, where they divest themselves of justice for their sake and give their lives away to display the surpassing grace of God, not just to their friends who it's convenient to do so to, but also to their enemies whom God has called the great multitude to also someday be his friends. Friends, that's the point of this text. The text is not, listen here, boys and girls, you're Christians now, so you have to behave and be nice and just do good to those jerks around you who are really hard to deal with. And if you do that and you do enough of it, maybe you'll get into heaven someday. Friends, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that God, by his sovereign grace, made you a former enemy, now his child, and the means by which he brings future enemies, other people who are enemies, to be his children is through the means of the display of the sovereign grace in your life as you give up your life and you love people around you that are incredibly difficult to love. God uses our lives, our giving up of our personal justice lives to be the means to bring others to reconciliation. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, one of my favorite texts, a beautiful text for the church to think about. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, meaning his children, former enemies that he's made his friends through the sovereign grace of the gospel, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him 
everywhere. Now listen to this fragrance. Listen to what this fragrance smells like to different types of people. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So what's Paul saying there? Just in summary, he's saying that God has made you his own. You were an enemy, you're now his child. And now he's called you to live in such a way, even amongst your enemies, to live in such a way to be a display of the surpassing treasure that we possess, that we sang about, so that God in his kindness would use our lives to those whom he has called in eternity past to be the means to bring them to faith. And those that are by their own rebellion, staying in their sin and rejecting the good grace of God, it's a scent of death to them. And it's not up to us to decide what God does with it. It's up to us to just give up our own lives for the sake of being used by God in that way, even to the extent of loving people that we would call our enemies. How does he do this? Well, I think the way he does this is he, he makes Jesus so beautiful. He makes following him so satisfying. He makes the gospel so rich as we gather together. Friends, that's why we gather and we preach the gospel every Sunday because Christians need to hear the good news again and again and again because we need to be refreshed in how beautiful and satisfying is our salvation. So that we, because I, I, like, I feel like this is my own heart. I come and I gather with you and I'm refreshed and I see Jesus more clearly. And then Monday through Saturday, it's like I'm, it's like I'm clinging back to the world. And then I come and I gather. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I just get like a, a reset. And then, and then I'm clinging and then I reset. And we need it afresh again and again and again. And I need to be reminded by the gospel of how Jesus doesn't just save me for an eternal destiny, but he frees me daily from myself. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, another dead Englishman, said about this text and how God frees us from ourselves. He said, as long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, right? Are you a, are you a sensitive Christian? Are you, are you like overly sensitive? Are you easily offended is it all about you? I can't believe that she said that. He treated me this way. What in the world? Right? Just a grumpy, sensitive, selfish Christian absorbed with your own justification. And Lloyd-Jones says that one of the implications of the gospel is that we're freed from that. As long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, watchful, and jealous. He is envious and is therefore always reacting immediately to what others do. He's in intimate contact with them. This is a great line. The only way to detach yourself from what others do to you is that you first of all detach yourself from yourself. 
And that's the freedom that the gospel gives. And that's the freedom that Jesus is calling us to in this text. That we let go of ourselves. We let go of our temporary claim on justice so that we're free to give our lives away and love our enemies. Okay, now let's land this plane quickly with uh, some application, right? How does this text then land on our lives? Because there are, uh, there are texts in the Scripture, like Psalm 139. Let me just read it real quickly before we do this application. That are good and righteous pleas for God's justice. Listen to Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. These are what's called imprecatory prayers or prayers that God would bring justice on evil men. So here's the question. It is good and right for us to pray that God would judge wicked men. But here's the question. Should we pray for our enemies or ask God to judge them? Should we pray for ISIS terrorists to be converted, or should we also ask God to bring justice to them swiftly, maybe even through the means of an American service person who takes their life? And I think that the answer to that question is both, is both. So some application, and then we'll end. If you're a soldier in the military of the United States of America, which is clearly an imperfect government that has imperfect motivations, but that God uses in his common grace, as we read out of Romans chapter 13 last week, to be the means by which he brings justice to evil men. If God should, if our country should call upon you, and I think under the authority of God's scripture, should call upon you to take the life of a wicked terrorist doing great harm, you are doing a good and noble thing. And I am in no way glamorizing war and how horrific it is, but you are doing a good and noble thing. If you're a police officer and you're on the streets of Columbus and you are required to make a very difficult decision about maybe using deadly force to stop somebody who is causing great harm to our society and city. And you are in that often impossible situation and you execute your judgment as faithfully as you can. It maybe means you firing your gun and taking the life of somebody doing evil things. You are doing a good and noble thing. If you are a parent, a dad, and you have you are bearing arms in your house and somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and is threatening to cause harm to your family and you take out that pistol that you have by your bed and you discharge a few bullets into that intruder and you take their life, you are doing a good and noble and just thing. Let's personalize it a little bit more. If you have somebody that just is just harassing you, and you would just consider it to be your enemy, 
and they are persecuting you. They're not a terrorist threatening to kill you or a criminal breaking into your premises, but they are an enemy. The imprecatory psalms don't apply in that situation. You are to give up your death grip on personal justice and love your enemies. We are to love our enemies so that God might use our lives. This is so glorious that he would use our lives to be a means of grace to people that he may very well in eternity past have set his saving love on. And whether or not God does it or not, friends, that's his business. Remember, we're just aroma. Those who are he is saving, it's the scent of life. Those who are perishing, it's the scent of death. That's God's business. We are to unclench our fists from personal justice for the sake of the display of the gospel. Friends, how can we live this way alone? It's impossible. We need friends. We need a community. We need a church. We need people to talk us off the ledge when we want to punch people in the face, right? Don't we? We need each other. And so let's live together in this gracious gospel way. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, these, the claims that this text puts on our lives are enormous and comprehensive. We're not living for ourselves. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, we're, we need to detach ourselves from ourself. Would you do that? Would you turn us from being sensitive people? Sensitive people. People who are not governed and dominated by American values more than we are gospel values. Would you help us, as our brother Martin Lloyd-Jones says, detach ourselves from ourselves? So that we're free to be like these this remarkable believers in Charleston who, as they stood and faced evil, they were able to say, may God have mercy on your soul. They were able to display an otherworldly kind of love that this world cannot comprehend and that you used to make the grace that you give all people effective for those whom you have in eternity past deemed to save God. What a great privilege. May our lives be used in that glorious way as we detach ourselves from ourselves. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who, by your grace, they have the work of your Holy Spirit by you opening their eyes, they have realized that they came into this room an ungodly sinner who at their core was a treasonous enemy of the Most High God. Lord, would you even use these meager words of mine in your inspired scripture to open their eyes, 
to let them see that the grossest of sinners has hope in the sovereign grace of God. And they must turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in what you have done on the cross of your son Jesus, who lived a perfect, obedient life, where we have all rebelled, where we have all made ourselves enemies. Jesus obeyed. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to you as a man. And he laid down his life on the cross to absorb the punishment and wrath that should have been ours as your enemies. And because he was not just a perfect man, but because he is the infinitely holy son of God, he has enough righteousness to completely satisfy your justice. And he did that on the cross and he absorbed it and he rose again in victory over it. And now he commands all people everywhere, even the most ungodly, even the worst of his enemies, to turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope on what he has done for them. God, would you do that? Would you show that glorious news to somebody that knows that they are an enemy of God up to this point? And would you save them? And Lord, would you make us a church that lives in this way so that we might display the surpassing worth of the treasure that we possess, Christ. And we pray it in your glorious and good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.